nation. We are doing very poorly in containing the malignancy. That's Dr. Stephen Bezruchka, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Dr. Stephen Bezruchka on the human cancer in the COVID-19 era. A famous Russian revolutionary once said, There are decades where nothing happens, and there are weeks where decades happen. The pandemic certainly feels that way. We are in limbo. The uncertainty is bewildering. What can we expect? What must we do? There are no clear answers. Dr. Stephen Bezuchka presents a novel view of the novel virus. What if we are a cancer on this planet? The human species fits the definition of a cancer. We have practiced cancer denial and are paying the price with the world's largest number of COVID-19 cases and deaths. We need to honor and respect Gaia, our beloved and besieged planet. The recent global protests presents the opportunity to collectively treat the human species cancer and hope for a remission. We need a new perspective on our life on Earth. Let the healing begin. Our guest today is Dr. Stephen Bezruchka. He's on the faculty of the Department of Global Health and the Department of Health Services at the University of Washington. He worked for many years as an emergency physician in Seattle. He spoke from his home in Seattle in late July. And now, Dr. Stephen Bezruchka. The COVIDian disaster is forcing our species to come to grips with a stark choice. We're at a critical fork in the Earth's biological highway. The left fork is labeled survival and entails radical changes in our way of life, whereas the right fork, labeled extinction, entails a radical change in our lives, only a more extreme one. Every illness is there to teach you something. If you don't learn the first time, there may be a few more opportunities to learn the lesson, and then, if you don't, it's over. For centuries, we've been overstressing the capacity of the planet to nurture various forms of life. I plan to analyze our situation under the overarching Gaia principle. Gaia, the Greek primordial deity, represents the personification of the earth. She's the ancestral mother of all life, a living organism. Gaia posits that all parts of the earth interact with one another and their surroundings to form a complex synergistic system which is itself alive. We may be witnessing the revenge of Gaia today. Let's begin with the current crisis. How did we come to the current precarious existence we face under the horns of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which produces the disease COVID-19? There is much we still don't know about this illness, but the lessons we must learn are clear. Why did this happen and what must be done now? Collective action as well as effective leadership will be required to sustain human life. This is especially challenging today as society is fragmented and too many of our current leaders 
do not command the global respect and trust required to work together. Thinkers have long characterized the human species as some kind of planetary disease. Is the human species a cancer on the planet? I first heard this novel question over 20 years ago from Warren Hearn, an anthropologist and doctor. He proposed a panel discussion on this topic at the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the nation's leading scientific organization. The organizers turned him down. He repeated the submission the next year, and it was turned down again with the admonition, you may not ask this question. Thomas Pynchon wrote in Gravity's Rainbow, if they can get you asking the wrong questions, they don't have to worry about the answers. I hope to persuade you that we must ask whether the human species is a cancer on the planet. It's not the wrong question. What does it mean for something to be called a cancer? In the medical realm, if you asked a pathologist or a cancer doctor what a malignant cancer was, she would say it was a cellular process of unrestrained rapid growth, destruction of other tissues, distant metastases, meaning spread to tissues far from its origin, production of toxic metabolites, and finally, de-differentiation meaning as the cancer grows, it becomes more primitive and loses the specialized processes of the tissues wherein it began. Does this definition apply to our species? Let's begin by looking at maps of cities from a few hundred years ago to the present. Look at any map of any typical American city a hundred years ago. Superimpose later maps over the earlier ones what you will clearly see is boundless growth. Cities used to be contained within a wall long ago, but not in recent times. Almost all have become boundless. Unrestrained growth is occurring. This is like compound interest in bank deposits. I recall the physicist Alfred Bartlett describing this process by asking what happens if one puts one cell in a jar and it reproduces every minute to become two, and then in the next minute become four, and so on. The size of the jar is such that it will be full in an hour after the first cell divides. Search the web for Al Bartlett, B-A-R-T-L-E-T-T, and the brief video, Bacteria in Bottles, describing the impossibility of exponential growth on a finite planet. After 59 minutes, the bottle is half full, and it might seem that there's still much room. But in the next minute, it fills up. With our species now numbering close to 8 billion, how much longer will it take for the bottle to fill up? Not long. Unrestrained growth, the characteristic of cancer, is happening. To evaluate whether we are destroying other tissues, Consider natural habitats that have become paved, swamps that have been drained, terrains functioning as homes for wild animals and other creatures that have been destroyed, concrete structures placed on top of fertile soil, and so on. 
Especially important regarding our Covidian era is the intense deforestation that has been rampaging around the world. We clear forests and replace them with various human-made structures large enough to be visible from space. Recall Joni Mitchell's refrain, they pay paradise and put up a parking lot. Distant metastasis is represented by various suburbs and exurbs around the main urban malignancy. These can satellite cancers get the organism to construct blood vessels or roads to feed them. These highways allow the cancer to get nourishment, the stuff we buy and consume, and to allow the waste products we produce to be shipped elsewhere. Consumer waste is a small fraction of overall corporate waste. Remember the bottle when it was around half full? No worries. And so we build bigger highways leading to turnpikes and interstates to nourish the human species' cancer. We are clearly producing vast numbers of toxic metabolites. In particular, the microplastics found almost everywhere on the planet. These pernicious small plastic particles, whose diameter can be as small as 5% of that of a human hair, shorten the lives of all living creatures, including us. Such toxic particles and chemicals affect us very early in life. When a baby is born today and the blood from its umbilical cord is sampled, there are over 300 chemicals present that weren't there 30 years ago. We don't know exactly what they're doing, but it is likely not good for us. Another effect of the human species cancer is the systematic pillage of the planet. Besides the forest, oceans, and deserts mentioned before, there is phenomenal financial looting. We, the people, have allowed plundering of our wealth, of what is ours and belongs to our earth. The oil in the soil, the minerals in the ground, the gold and diamonds down under. We didn't put them there. They're a part of Gaia, our Mother Earth home. This process has really ex recently expanded through novel economic systems we've embraced in the last, last half century. I refer to neoliberal economics or neoliberalism, where the dogma became entrenched that those who have robbed, looted, and pillaged the most are the true guardians of our Gaia. The rich and powerful know how to safeguard the wealth they've stolen from the earth. They clearly must be doing something right. Why not give them everything we can, since they will use our wealth to make us better off? Sounds crazy right now, but that was the way of thinking in the early 1980s. President Reagan told us that government was the problem, not the solution. Big government needed to be reduced. The rich and powerful know best. Let's make them even richer. They will then invest their newfound wealth so jobs and prosperity will trickle down to us. Thus began trickle-down economics, which a more correct name might be gush-up, maybe trickle-down economics. We taxed rich people much less, and since the government no longer had the money to spend to help the rest of us, the welfare belt was tightened, and we had to do with even less. Forget that spending on ordinary people in the United States 
was already considerably lower than in other rich countries. The rest of us would have to tighten our belts even more. Admittedly, the picture I have just painted of a naive and gullible populace is an oversimplification and ignores the key role of lobbyists, campaign contributions, and backroom deals. Cancers can be very aggressive. This was an example of an extreme invasion of the tissues, the life forms of Gaia. One byproduct has been the rise in income and wealth inequality to heights never before seen. Another toxic metabolite could be the brutal police killings that caught world attention this summer. These are not new, of course. Police are necessary to protect private property rights and ensure that the rich and privileged are secure and safe. As human societies have become polarized into the have-too-muches and the have-less-and-less, law enforcement has become the go-to response for almost any problem. Police are taught to use lethal force if they consider it necessary. Killology is studied. Consider police are cancer's killer cells, similar to cytotoxic lymphocytes in your blood. Since social spending has been drastically cut, folks who have mental illness sometimes get agitated, so family members or others call the police rather than mental health experts in treating such psychological problems. There's almost no problem in American society that has not led to a police call and response. Publicly funded policing in the U.S. began in Boston in 1838 as urbanization and population growth, our cancer, fostered a full-time police force paid through taxation. They protected the Boston Brahmins. Elsewhere, their duties included capturing and returning runaway slaves. The current cry, defund the police, is a consequence of how much money has been directed toward such law and order services rather than taking care of people's real needs. Police expenditures per capita in the U.S. are among the highest of any country, four times more than in many rich countries. Our malignancy has replaced caring and compassion for the marginalized in society by brutality and punishment. Few rich people have encounters with the police. Police look at people of color as criminals. Critics consider the war on drugs to be a pretext for a war on them. Another characteristic of our very invasive of very invasive cancers is central necrosis. The core of the cancer dies. When this happens, death is likely on the horizon. Consider the decay of inner cities such as Detroit, Boston, and Philadelphia. The impacts of this cancer are vast. We are destroying the planet. Many other species are becoming extinct, and the rate of extinctions is exponential, meaning that the speed of population decline is increasing. Are you with me? The human species is a cancer on Gaia, our living planet. This is not a metaphor. We are the real thing. In this talk, I shall be equally concerned with both of the terrible scourges threatening our species, COVID-19 and the human cancer on the planet. 
These days, everyone's mind is on COVID-19. But in the long term, the human cancer is the more serious of the two. The two are closely related. As I've mentioned, the disease COVID-19 is caused by the novel coronavirus SARS-CoV-2. Given the facts, alternative facts, and misinformation out there, I'm reminded of a pithy comment by E.O. Wilson, the famous insect scientist at Harvard, who said, quote, We are drowning in information, but lacking in wisdom, end of quote. The human cancer's destruction of our natural habitat is a primary cause of COVID-19. There is a huge demand for crops and forest products. Sweden, or slash-and-burn agriculture, has been with us for millennia, ever since we learned that setting fire to a small area of land would make the next crops grow better there. I observed this in Nepal. Small controlled burns resulted in more food being harvested. This was like a carcinoma in situ, namely a small growth that never really causes problems, such as the condition in a breast's milk ducts that most experts feel should be left alone as it will never become malignant. One can treat it aggressively or not, and the outcomes are mostly the same. But if a cancer is very aggressive, we need to act appropriately. Globally, the destruction of forests and the emptying of aquatic life from oceans Increasing desertification, the decline in numbers of pretty well every animal species, as well as those of wild plants, are all evidence that the human species' cancer is very aggressive. With the massive deforestation taking place today, our cancer-destroying neighborhood tissues, those of us who live at the edges of these shrinking forests come into increasing contact with the non-human animals whose habitat we have destroyed. Viruses and other pathogens, germs that cause infectious diseases, can easily make the short jump to humans. Recent examples include yellow fever, equine encephalitis, and Ebola, all of which have resulted from removing forests. SARS-CoV-2 began in bats, and with deforestation in those parts of the world, we then live closer to the bats. Infected bats might be sold in wet markets, or possibly the bats infected an intermediary creature, the pangolin, a scaly animal that is considered a delicacy in China and other parts of the world. The intermediate horseshoe bat and the Sunda pangolin are then the proximate carriers of the virus. We have always been connected with other animals and with natural habitats, but now the interconnectedness is far more pervasive and intimate as well as deadly. Human activity on Gaia, our cancer, then is the direct cause of COVID-19. Consider carcinogenesis, that is, the origins of the human cancer. It began 10,000 years ago with the transition from forager-hunter societies, considered one of the most successful and longest-lasting form of all human societies, to agricultural ones. 
Agriculture allowed for the stockpiling of food resources and the creation of a hierarchy. Someone could say, I am your lord, master, or king. You must grow my food, store it in the castle you build for me, surrounded by a moat, and go to war to protect my resources. Such conditions produced an overall human health decline. Why? Well, for one thing, the new and improved society invented poverty. That is, low-status people in agricultural societies had less and accepted that. Hunter-gatherer societies practiced vigilant sharing, where women were the equals of men. Farming required much more work than foraging and hunting. Women became producers of the labor force. More workers were needed, so women bred children who started working as soon as they could do something productive. Women, of course, did much of the other work. Whenever women's work efforts have been studied, they do much more than men. As we live closer to the domesticated farm animals, their diseases became human diseases. Swine flu from, cowpox from. As we destroyed natural habitats, closer contact with wild animals brought us HIV-AIDS and COVID-19. We then created civilizations with its alliances of lords and kings. China is the oldest civilization. It shouldn't surprise you that China is at least the second most powerful nation in the world, likely to displace the United States soon if it hasn't already. How did societies transform themselves from thousands of years ago? What were economies like then? Workers were typically paid in kind, namely food. Craft specialization emerged and various guilds were formed. Writing joined storytelling for communication. Literacy was initially limited to specialist folk, often tied to religions. Until recently, economic transactions occurred through barter and exchange of valuable objects, such as coins and cowrie shells. In feudalism, you worked for the master who took care of your immediate needs. Around the time of the Industrial Revolution that began in Western Europe about 250 years ago, more severe exploitation of the poor occurred. People became wage slaves as they worked the mills and factories. To cope with increasing poverty, poor laws were passed. The political and economic system wasn't called capitalism until the time of Karl Marx, 150 years ago, who wrote about capital and its surplus and use values. Profits came from exploiting natural resources and workers, then including owned slaves. Adam Smith was misquoted as saying that if we each followed our greed, it would be best for all of us. Some capitalists were much more greedy than others. They deforested more. They mined more. They beat their slaves more. They had factories built that polluted more. Capitalism became the entrenched mode of production. Groups objected and talked about socialism and then communism. Several major revolutions erupted to overthrow the prevailing mode of capitalism. 
Examples include the Russian Revolution in 1917, the Chinese in 1949, and the Cuban in 1960. These nations look considerably different today, as does capitalism. Neoliberalism has become the prevailing mode of societal organization. As I've said, it represents the gushing up of our resources to those already rich and powerful, the rationale being that their even more excessive wealth will ultimately trickle down to the rest of us. In many countries, such as the social democracies of Europe, government spending on the lower classes had become fairly generous. However, the benefits which the population has come to expect are now being stripped away by the austerity policies promoted by neoliberalism, especially after the subprime mortgage crisis in 2008-9. The term austerity is widely used in Europe to describe governments providing less to the people than they used to. It is not used here much, as most downtrodden people in America blame themselves for not working hard enough. Here, people are expected to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Work hard and you can achieve anything. That's the American mantra. We pride ourselves on living in a democracy. But in many of today's democracies, the power of the people has been eroded and strong man governments have taken hold. Why? It is almost as if we are reverting to our youth when we had parents to look out for us and tell us what to do. A disobedient child might be labeled with oppositional defiant disorder, or ODD, which today is a mental illness. Today, there's a global tendency for electing authoritarian leaders who have little interest in the needs of the common man and woman. They act like our childhood parents. Paradoxically, as adults, many of us accept such leaders. Why this has become common is debatable, but there's a general sense that post-World War II democracies have not succeeded in meeting our expectations. We need to try something different and revert to having parents tell us what to do. Well, not parents, but fathers. The authoritarian leaders are all men. The heads of state in Brazil, the United States, and the United Kingdom, among quite a few, are such dictatorians whose popularity can be explained by this reverted mindset. Let's look again at the virus. There are many other ways of trying to make sense of what is going on today with the disease. We might take a war metaphor, namely we're fighting a war uh, with SARS-CoV-2. If we do this and somehow win this war, there will certainly be another one soon. Our history after the agriculture era began is full of wars. Fighting wars is costly. The Covidian War is atrociously expensive and disturbing to life as we knew it. It would be helpful for us to understand the unusual nature of this war as we send more troops into battle. First of all, the word war isn't right. Call it a phantom war, since no nation or ideological group is fighting another. Rather, we're all in this together, 
What would a victory look like? It would mean finding ways to control or eradicate the virus or to prevent infection or to develop curative treatments. Finding a vaccine is essential. We might be lucky and develop an effective one. Hopefully, there will be global cooperation to distribute it to everyone at low or no cost. However, in spite of vast efforts, we haven't been successful in developing an immunization for HIV, AIDS, Ebola, malaria, or even tuberculosis. The latter, too, remain the biggest infectious disease killers in the world today. There's an effective yellow fever vaccine, but that hasn't stopped recent outbreaks. I'm not suggesting we stop trying to find an immunization agent. It just might not produce the miracle we want. Suppose we find a cure. This is again unlikely since we haven't done it for HIV AIDS or many other infections. With a good health care system and provision of drugs, we can control the effects of HIV AIDS to a remarkable extent. Curative drugs for treating viral diseases haven't had the success experienced with bacterial ones. And even there, bacterial infections such as TB still kill huge numbers of people despite their being effective for treatment and cure. Thankfully, there's no way that researchers will stop trying to find a remedy for COVID-19. You're listening to Dr. Stephen Bezruchka, on the human cancer in the COVID-19 era. This is Independent Alternative Radio. CDs of this program are available if you call us at 1-800-444-1977. In solidarity with you, our listeners, we are offering MP3s, PDFs, and written transcripts of this program at no charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can go on our website, alternativeradio.org. Eradicating the virus is impossible since it lives in animals such as bats. No, we will not try to kill all the bats. They help humans enormously. The only infectious disease we've been able to successfully eliminate is smallpox. It lived only in humans, and there was an effective vaccine. That effort took a few hundred years before the last case died in 1978. Still, wars are easier to talk about than cancers. China's President Xi called the Covidian War a people's war, something that China has waged before. Wars typically produce wanton destruction of infrastructure, buildings, roads, bridges, harbors, that all require rebuilding afterwards. That won't be the case with the Covidian War. If we win this war by flattening the curve or bending it down to zero, we won't have victory parades and humiliate the losers. Let's not be warriors. That isn't the way forward. But we can tackle the human cancer. One of the outcomes of the Covidian War is that income and wealth inequality have rocketed into the stratosphere. This is mostly unheard of in war. The richest person on the planet, Jeff Bezos, has seen his wealth increase by over $49 since the start of the pandemic. 
By 2026, some predict he will be the world's first trillionaire. Today, there are many other pandemic profiteers. In major wars, inequality usually goes down as the depletion of the workforce turns the economy into a worker's market. The opposite has happened here. Close to a quarter of the U.S. workforce has become unemployed, and the remaining workers will accept pay cuts rather than lose their jobs. This is not like the usual war unless you consider it a war of all against all, as humanity was described in Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes in the mid-1600s. A very significant part of the relationship between the human cancer and COVID-19 is that the terrible inequities of the human cancer amplify the lethality of the disease. It's always the lower class which is more seriously affected. Let me bring home this connection with another analogy, the sinking of the Titanic. We all know how the supposedly invincible Titanic sank when it collided with an iceberg most of which was unseen under the surface. The Titanic is our society, and the iceberg is the virus. After the impact, the band played on while deck chairs on the vessel were rearranged. Our president is doing that now. The outcomes on the Titanic were not uniformly bad. For those with a first-class ticket, 60% survived. Second-class, 40%. Third-classer crew, only 25%. The same correlation between class and death is occurring now. In the U.S., poor Latinx and blacks are the casualties. The rich always do better. What is the lesson here? Recognize that most of the hazard is unseen underwater. And always travel first class on the Titanic. For everyone to do so, would require vastly reducing class divisions. I want to stay with our novel and very real human species cancer. What treatment should we pursue? If our species is a cancer on the planet, there is one capability this cancer has that other oncologic processes do not. Oncology is the fancy medical word for cancer, or the study of cancer. In medical school, One of the things I learned was a specialist language of about 5,000 words, which enabled me to baffle others in a sophisticated way. Our cancer has cognition. That is, it thinks. In fact, the human species cancer has almost 8 billion brains, or it has one network global brain, as Howard Bloom argues. Our cancer has the capacity of stopping itself or at least diminishing the harm it does. Therein lies the hope. Sometimes cancers spontaneously regress. That is, they get better on their own. As a medical student in the early 1970s, I found a book in the Lane Medical Library at Stanford that had documented cases of malignant cancers that were surgically proven to be present and then miraculously disappear. What can we do to treat the human cancer, or stimulate a spontaneous remission, if you will? Many therapies have arisen. Consider the Extinction Rebellion, a nascent group 
attracting young cancer therapists that is trying to redress the extinction of so many life species. Another is the Sunrise Movement, young people fighting global warming, another consequence of the human cancer. Greta Thunberg has captured world attention with her climate strikes. These are another form of badly needed cancer therapy. One of the best approaches is to highlight the cancer's effect. The Black Lives Matter response, a form of therapy that has been brewing in the background and has burst out on our streets and screens, has directed attention to racism, another severe toxic product which exists in some form everywhere. The Me Too movement, highlighting sexual harassment and sexual abuse, has been with us for over a decade, trying to suppress that aspect of the cancer's growth, namely allowing the powerful to do as they please. The global medical care system attempts to find a treatment or a vaccine or even a cure for COVID-19. Some nations will do even better than others. How well is the United States doing in this effort? People all over the world see the U.S. as an innovator doing great things. We remain the only nation to have landed a human on the moon. We invented communication at a distance. Remember the telegraph, which catapulted to speedy personal computers and smartphones. We mass-produced the automobile and the airplane. We invented and dropped the atomic bomb that produced immense, devastating forces. Together with our allies, we won the Second World War. Rich people from all over the world come to the United States for the best medical care in the world. Such was American exceptionalism. There was an implicit expectation around the world that we would handle COVID-19 and brag to others about our success. What happened? Today, what American exceptionalism means is America's exceptionally poor health performance compared to other nations. Before the Covidian era, we lived shorter, less healthy lives than those in the other rich and not-so-rich nations. I coined the term Health Olympics to express ranking of countries by health indicators. If we eradicated our leading killer, heart disease, the condition that will likely kill half of you listeners out there, we still wouldn't be the healthiest nation in terms of how long we live. We have more poverty than any other rich nation, and we have the most billionaires of any nation. We house a quarter of the world's prisoners. We consume more than half of the world's opioids. I could go on, but the point is, as a nation... As a cancer organ in the human species, we are doing very poorly in containing the malignancy. By July, a quarter of the world's COVID-19 deaths occurred on our soil. Our rate of deaths per million people is several hundred times that of China, where it all began. COVID-19 has produced an unparalleled disaster in this country. According to press reports from other countries, there is widespread astonishment at how inept and disgraceful our response has been. I'm not surprised. Since we can't produce good health here, 
how could we be expected to stay off the winner's platform in the coronavirus death Olympics? So no, we attained what might be expected. In the unlikely event that we lose the gold medal in these death Olympics, rest assured we'll snag one of the top three prizes. Income inequality has profound effects on the health of societies. That is, more unequal societies have worse health, has been one of the greatest research discoveries of the last 40 years. If we examine U.S. death rates state by state, we see that people live shorter lives in the more unequal ones. This relationship has now been documented with COVID-19 deaths. The states with higher rates of coronavirus deaths are those with a bigger gap between rich and the poor. Inequality kills. At this point, there is much finger-pointing about how we came to this situation, how this country has screwed up in the response to the pandemic. The Trump death clock in Times Square counts the excess deaths that wouldn't have occurred if our president had listened to scientific advice in January and acted appropriately. There is similar bad news about the large fraction of deaths that have occurred in nursing homes, which are incubators for the virus. Or the way the world's most expensive medical care system was unprepared and lacked basic supplies and methods to treat sick people. It's depressing that today there's still a shortage of personal protective equipment. Gaia, our Earth as self-regulating organism, is retaliating to what we have imposed on her. Is this the apocalypse that has been prophesied for eons? Not yet. Is COVID-19 a form of planetary regulation of the human cancer? Maybe. Every illness is there to teach you something. The COVIDian lesson is that our species must develop and carry out a sustained program of global cooperation. Since you get what you measure, or to put it another way, what gets measured gets done, we need to find a measure to track what represents genuine progress in treating our human species cancer. There are a variety of measures in common use. The United Nations has its Human Development Index. There's a genuine progress indicator as well as others. All of these are somewhat complex, so I would propose a simpler measure, life expectancy. The difference in length of life in the longest-lived country today Japan, and the shortest-lived nation, today the Central African Republic, is 32 years. Progress would be to collapse this measure to, say, 10 years, a challenging achievement which would avert a billion or more deaths. How is this system of global cooperation going to happen? Crises have brought profound political change. The Great Depression spawned the New Deal, a good thing. The subprime mortgage crisis of 2008-9 unfortunately brought the opposite, namely reinforcing neoliberal practices that made the rich richer and the poor poorer. How can we keep this one on the right track? Well, just as we track progress towards landing on the moon, 
we can day by day or year by year track health inequity around the globe. Today we're going in the wrong direction to make progress with our malignancy. Infectious disease and pandemic experts have consistently cautioned against a premature reopening of the economy, yet that is what has been happening. Cases are resurging. Why are we so incapable of learning the most basic lessons? Many people claim they want their liberty. What these people are really saying is, quote, give me liberty and give me death, end of quote. The major reason for the rush to end the lockdown is to try to get back to business as usual, namely to put profits before staying alive. In some ways, that is understandable. Many people are out of work and their lives are now very precarious. Trying to get a precise estimate of the true unemployment rate is difficult. But we can agree that the situation is likely worse than at any time in American history. If we bring sports events back to the stadiums, we would be putting Daniel into the lion's den. Hundreds of thousands of Daniels who will still be outnumbered by the voracious lions. Very risky. Similarly, reopening movie theaters, theme parks, indoor rallies, and packing diners into restaurants is going to increase deaths. The same with reopening schools, colleges, factories, production lines. The immediate effect would be to put people back to work, but the cost in human lives will be colossal. What else might be done to avert mass killings? Let's use our 8 billion brains and consider our options. Rich corporations and rich individuals have enormous amounts of wealth that can be shared. The federal government passed a Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security, or CARES Act, in March to send up to $1,200 to ordinary people. This cost over $2 trillion. Much of that $2 trillion has gone to big corporations and wealthy folk. A follow-on bill is being considered to give more federal money away, again, to those already privileged. We have a class war going on, and the rich are winning, as they have since at least the 1970s. Their lead in the war is increasing today, just as the human cancer is spreading immensely. But if we act together... The numbers of us in lower classes are much larger and have much more collective power than the rich. The traditional method of exercising our power is to put concerted pressure on our elected representatives and to support candidates who understand what is the right thing to do. What else can be done? Remember the New Deal. Reconfigured as the Green New Deal, it could work again to kill our two major diseases, COVID-19 and the human cancer, together. Getting people to do productive work gives them meaning in their lives. Just as jobs were created during the Great Depression to make America great, we can repeat that process. It would require retooling the economy and society and changing economic relations. It would require massive restructuring of work and workplaces in order to avoid the risk of infection. 
But the human cancer has brain power and a conscience. It can think its way through these challenges. Many of the cancer cells, you people out there, already understand that the cancer is heading towards the final fate of all cancers, namely necrosis of the cancer or the death of the host body. The problem is to get most of the other cancer cells to reach this understanding and to renounce the dogma of relentless growth. Given our global interconnectedness, our global brain, it will be necessary to coordinate efforts around the planet. We need to do away with nationalist tendencies and superpower races. This effort will require global cooperation on a scale never undertaken before. Recall the Manhattan Project. When atomic energy became understood, partly due to Albert Einstein's theories, and the possibility of creating an atomic bomb surfaced, a secret project was developed to produce the weapon. The nation's best minds and resources were put to the task, and the project took about four years. The concentrated effort succeeded, for better or worse. We must heal Gaia. What about a global sustainability project? Get good minds, big leaders, and critical thinkers together to work on healing our human cancer on the planet. They can work virtually. Their efforts should be transparent, unlike the Manhattan Project, which was housed in secret beneath a stadium at the University of Chicago. Systems thinking provides another perspective, sort of a Gaia principle for the business world, or for any system such as our interrelated species. The current system of human beings on the globe is detrimental to life on the planet. How do you change systems? At this point, I just want to whet your appetite on systems thinking. Study of systems began after World War II. Jay Forrester at MIT was a leading thinker there. 25 years ago, I attended a conference where Jay presented his ideas. Forrester stressed that there are no quick fixes for a broken system. Long before that, Donella Meadows, a systems thinker at Dartmouth University, described places to intervene in, in, a, in systems, leverage points, in increasing order of effectiveness. Meadows pointed out that the least effective are numbers, taxes, subsidies, and standards. Most efforts today only want to address these. A start. Regulate negative feedback loops, then drive positive ones. Recognize the importance of information flows. Today's media make it especially difficult to treat the human species cancer. Next in importance are the rules of the system, namely incentives, punishments, and constraints. More important still is the power of self-organization, which has been my focus here. Then the goals of the system. And finally, the strongest leverage point is the mindset or paradigm that drives the system. Meadows died a number of years ago, but a website DonellaMeadows.org, D-O-N-E-L-L-A-M-E-A-D-O-W-S.org, has much material about systems thinking.
This pandemic is a terrible thing to waste. You, the listener, need to use every means at your disposal to look at the fundamental cause of this system and work to change that. I presented my perspective here. I recommend that you put your critical thinking skills to work and see if you agree. If you don't, consider what you think is fundamentally going on. Test out these thoughts on others. There are so many ways of doing that. Get a group of like-minded people together, probably virtually at this time, and make plans for what to do. Do what you enjoy doing. For if not, then you won't be doing it for long. You should do what you have skills for, and you should be in it for the long haul. The COVID pandemic has likely profoundly changed how you live your life as well as the lives of your family and friends, how you do your work, your play, and how you spend your time. Staying healthy and alive is now everyone's focus. I'm asking you to consider our collective humanity and see the planet beyond the habitat we have destroyed. Plagues have always been with us as our cancer has grown. If we don't learn the lesson and recognize and treat the cancer of which we are the cells, the brute will live on. We must rein in this monster before it destroys us and life on the planet. Thank you. That was Dr. Stephen Bezruchka on the human cancer in the COVID-19 era. He spoke from his home in Seattle in late July. Dr. Stephen Bezruchka is on the faculty of the Department of Global Health and the Department of Health Services at the University of Washington. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent, progressive nonprofit. Now in our 34th year, we are supported solely by individuals just like you. We have a series of programs with Dr. Bezruchka. Please see our website, Alternative Radio. Org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. CDs of this program are available on our website or by calling us at 1-800-444-1977. In solidarity with you, our listeners, we're offering free of charge MP3s, PDFs, and printed transcripts of today's program Stephen Bezruchka, The Human Cancer in the COVID-19 Era. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Zucchero and Bono, Canta la Vita. Let your love be known. C'è un gran silenzio E non c'è più gente qui Per le strade di Chi 
What is it? CJSW. This is Crispin Glover. You are listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Thank you. Thank you. One more. Thank you. Thank you.